Hey everyone, this is Caleb here from In the Mood for Real History. Now before you get started with this episode, if you haven't heard, I want to tell you about Anchor. It's the easiest way to make a podcast, so let me explain it to you. First off, being on a teacher's salary, I love that it is free. There's also creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. So make sure to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Come stay and play at Live Casino and Hotel. Welcome to one of the biggest casinos in the country with luxurious clean rooms, upscale dining, and the grandest payouts. Now offering stay and play and all in packages, including $50 free slot play, VIP parking, VIP casino access, and more. Book now at livecasino.com or call 443-445-2929 at Arundel Mills. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgambling.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hello and streaming to you live from one of the few places in Alabama with any common sense. This is In the Mood to Learn Real History, where I'm on a mission to make history real again. With today's society filled with fake news and all-out lies in your history books, every week, this show will take an episode-by-episode look into the obscure and the major events of history. But the caveat is where it's from a people's perspective. So instead of hearing the same old stories in your history books that you most likely slept through, we will look at these events from a perspective of everyday people and how they, not the glorified leaders, truly shaped our history. I'm your host, Caleb Mood. So I want to start out by saying that I'm so incredibly thankful for all the support I've received. If you enjoy this episode and want to let me know how I'm doing, feel free to like and subscribe to this channel. I always appreciate any kind of comments or feedback. So this week has been so exciting because I created a Facebook page only five days ago, and within five days, I've received over 130 follows. That's amazing, and I've noticed it huge increase in the traffic volume on my YouTube page. So I'm just so incredibly thankful. So I want to play a game to quote Saul. I'm about to name a list of rights and I want you to keep a mental count of how many of these you agree with. So just in your head, just keep a uh, tally of how many of these you actually agree with. A woman's right to vote, social security, a minimum wage, Safety laws for your workplace, so a safe working conditions, a 40-hour week, health insurance, the right to vote for all races. Better yet, how many of you drove on a paved street today? How many of you support the military and the police departments? So, out of all those, did you keep count? If we're being honest with ourselves, all these ideas sound pretty common sense and, you know, they should just be guaranteed, right? Well, congratulations, because all of you are supporters of socialist ideas. I can't wait to see each and every one of you in November at the polls voting for all those progressive candidates, okay? Okay, okay. So anyone whose head has not exploded yet and is still watching this, now I have your attention. Since finishing up my series on the Holocaust, I've been working on my new series of tackling democratic socialism. So now that I've given a Roy, uh, Roy Moore his chance to, you know, go change his diaper because I mentioned the S word, I'm going to continue. Just picture that SpongeBob episode of uh, Mermaid Man going, Evo! But anyway, 
more than any time since World War I, so over 100 years ago, Americans are talking about socialism. Conservatives equate it to the use of the word Voldemort in Harry Potter. Liberals question it. Many progressives and radicals embrace it. But why does the word spark so much controversy? So this, along with many other questions, will be the topic of my next few episodes. We'll begin the series by tracing the long history of socialism in the United States. I know, believe it or not. As the recent outbreak of COVID-19 has made abundantly clear, the United States could be, a, could be run a lot better and decently than it is now. This pandemic has highlighted the ever-growing gap in economic and racial inequalities. I think we can all agree that the pandemic has caused us to reevaluate the future of our society. The purpose of this series will be to clarify the many misconceptions on what democratic socialism is and hopefully spark a conversation about what our country could look like if we truly took democratic control over the institutions that shape our world. So the resource that I'm going to be using this entire series is an amazing book called we own, the hit, we own the Future, Democratic Socialism American Style. So it's by Kate Aronoff, Peter Dreyer, and Michael Kazin. I highly suggest this book if you're interested in what exactly democratic socialism is and what it stands for. So what really drew me into wanting to learn more about democratic socialism, it really started pretty much like anybody else when Bernie Sanders decided to launch his second bid for, presidency la for, for the presidency last year. So I'll be the first to admit that I did not know much about democratic socialism before this. But one thing I was certain of was that there was no way it could be the same sort of insane, asinine attempts at a post on Facebook of what it said it was. Just a word for the wise, if a Facebook post ends by saying, bet you won't be willing to share it or make this viral before it's taken down, then it's not a reliable source to begin with. Anyway. I decided to do my own research, crazy, and came upon this book. So once I started reading it, I really couldn't even put it down. Seeing the passion, the hope, and the progressive thinking about how to make this country work for all of us and not just a certain few was truly inspiring. So each chapter presented, uh, they present these bold new ideas that reject the status quo and dares the reader to think about more than just themselves. So I hope that by the time we finish this series, you'll see exactly what I was talking about, about how I couldn't even put this book down. So over the next few episodes, I'm going to break down the main arguments in this book. We'll cover everything from the history of socialism in the United States, which will be this episode, to the argument for a third reconstruction to finally start to right our nation's historical wrongs by addressing racial and economic inequalities. So we're going to cover electoral reforms, criminal justice reforms, universal health care, and even how sports could thrive under democratic socialism. And, you know, just a, uh, just a quick little spoiler alert. It's better. So anyway, before we get into the history of socialism, let's go ahead and lay out some definitions and clarify any common misconceptions. So first off, let's just go ahead and get the elephant out of the room that I know people are just sitting on the on their seats waiting to just jump and uh, yell at me about. What exactly is democratic socialism? So democratic socialism is the belief that both the economy and society should be run democratically to, pe to meet the public needs, not just be a source of profit for the few. I know that's a crazy concept. 
So in order to achieve a more just society, many structures of our government and economy must be radically transformed through greater economic and social democracy so that ordinary Americans like you and me, so that we can participate in these major decisions that affect all of us. So democratic socialists believe that the government is a force for good in people's lives and that a large European-style welfare state can exist in a capitalist society. Both of those can go hand in hand. They generally support ideas such as labor reform, pro-union policies, tuition-free public universities and trade schools, universal health care, federal jobs programs, fair taxation that closes loopholes for the wealthiest to get out of paying taxes, and using taxes on the rich and corporations to pay for these social welfare programs that I just listed above. So now that we've got a basic definition, let's answer some more questions. So does that mean we have to violently overthrow capitalism and do away with capitalism? Once again, no. The goals of democratic socialism is not some violent overthrow of capitalism, but it's working within the system of capitalism itself through legal and peaceful means to bring about reforms in the electoral and social reforms. SpongeBob was blown away, so he just fell out of thought of that too. So this leads me to my next question. What is the difference between socialist, communist, and democratic socialism? It always seems to be just lumped in together. So what's the difference? So all those are the same, right? So that's negative. The simple answer to this is that democratic socialists believe in democracy, while communist forms of government and other socialist forms of government are not democracies. Democratic socialists, hence the name it, democratic in front of it, believe in elections, the First Amendment. They want ordinary people to have more power in a more democratic system. Whereas in communist countries, the state controls everything and a small group controls that state. So more power to the people, more democratic views. But then people say, okay, well, you know, the USSR had the, the S in one of the USSR stood for socialist. So yes, the Soviet Union, the, one of the S's did stand for socialist, but the distinction between socialist and communist started during the Bolshevik revolution of 1917 in Russia. So once the Bolsheviks took power, a split formed between the communist forces and the socialist forces. After the split, anyone, anyone who wanted to follow the Russian model became a communist and anybody else became socialist. Big difference between communist and socialist. And as we get to later in the episode, we'll see where democratic socialism formed as an offshoot of socialism. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Donald Trump said that the US will never be a socialist country in his 2019 State of the Union address. That's true. So if you're a Republican, does that mean that means you have to be against uh, any kind of uh, the word socialism, right? Well, look at Venezuela, Nicaragua, and the Soviet Union. All horrible examples of socialism. Those are the ones that are usually used, right? So if we push for Medicare for all and other socialist policies, we will have rationed health care and bread lines, right? Right? That's, that's, that's what the argument is, correct? So my response is what do all of those countries that I mentioned have in common? They're all run by dictators. Also, it is called democratic socialism. That means that they believe in the right to a democracy, not a dictatorship. There's a clear distinction 
but yet, you know, certain people just use it all under an umbrella term just for fear mongering sake. But anyway, and in regards to the programs costing so much, you know, oh, we're going to go broke if we try to pay for Medicare for all and tuition free. How do you plan on paying for it? So since when have the Republicans ever really cared about spending so much money? What about that trillion dollar tax cut that the Republicans passed a few years ago? Who who benefited from that? Was it you and me? Um, More like the wealthy millionaires and billionaires who paid less in their taxes each year than you and me. But who does that burden fall on to pay for that tax cut? That would be you and me, the people that pay our taxes. So um, next question. Socialism means that the government owns all forms of business, right? So now you are correct. Socialism and communism both believe that the government should own all businesses. Correct, yes. Democratic socialism does not. They just believe that a select few corporate elites should not own all of the wealth and dictate to people how their lives should go. Crazy concept. So the resources are used to make money for capitalists rather than meet the human needs. That's wrong. Democratic socialists believe that the workers and consumers who are affected by the economic institutions should own those institutions and have control or a say in that power. Essentially, private businesses are never going to go away. That's not what democratic socialists are pushing for. Instead, they only want to ensure that corporations act in the interest of everyone, not just a few. Okay, so one final question. So everybody enjoys all of our rights and freedoms, and we're always under, uh, according to Republicans, threat of being, it being taken away by the horrible do-nothing Democrats, right? So Trump said that socialism is a threat to everywhere, to liberty and freedom. Okay. So I'll let FDR's 1944 State of the Union address answer that, you know, rebut that question. FDR said, we have to come to a clear realization of the fact that true individual freedom cannot exist without economic security and independence. So the United States must finally recognize that economic rights are human rights. The point Roosevelt was making was that it's great that you have political rights. That's great. But what does it matter if you can't afford to go to the doctor when you're sick? What does it matter that you have those rights if you're earning a starvation wage? What does it matter if you're sleeping out on the street? What does it matter if you're 85 years of age and you can't afford the prescription drugs that you need to ease your pain? So what the definition of democratic socialism is to me is making certain that economic rights have to be seen as human rights, not just political rights or human rights. But economic rights are human rights as well. Everybody has the right to certain things. That's not just in, in uh, regards to politics. So democratic socialism is simply an alternative to a system that is organized to benefit a handful of elites rather than, rather than the greater mass of Americans. So I'll repeat that once again. Democratic socialism is simply the alternative to the corrupt capitalist system that's organized to benefit a select few. So instead, it benefits all. So before I get ahead, too ahead of myself, just like in my classes, we, have, we need to lay a solid foundation. In this episode, we can do that by first tracing the successes and the failures of socialism throughout the history of the United States. So let's get going. So during his 2019 State of the Union address, 
President Trump stated, America will never be a socialist country. Yet three years earlier, in 2016, avowed Democratic Socialist Bernie Sanders captured 13 million votes in his campaign for president. In 2018, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, and dozens of other Democratic Socialists were all swept into office at all levels of the government thanks to Trump's anti-Trump sentiment. So in fact, to, according to a 2019 Gallup poll, 43% of all Americans and 58% of Americans between the ages of 18 and 34 believe that some form of socialism would be a good thing for our country. Democratic socialists have played major roles in 21st century activism, including Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, and the Me Too movement. In many ways, our nation seems to be just kind of like holding their collective breath, trying to decide what kind of country do we want to be? Do we progress forward or revert back to the way things were? It's really like a watershed moment. An overwhelming majority of Americans on both sides of the aisle are sick and tired of the economic and political status quo. The frustrating part is that middle and lower class, mostly white conservatives, do not realize that Democrats and liberals are not their enemy. It's the elite to use buzzwords such as socialism and race to keep the people split. Ideas once considered radical only a few years ago, such as health, universal health care, tuition-free college, same-sex marriage, the Green New Deal, are all now mainstream policies in the Democratic Party, and even for some Republicans. Over 50% of the country agrees with a lot of these uh, once radical ideas. So most of the views about democratic socialism stems from our views of European nations that have adopted different aspects of it to much success. But why look to Europe when we can look at our own history for successful ideas? We can look at our nation's rich history of progressive programs that raised the standard of living, corralled in corporate greed, made our cities more livable, and expanded rights to previously suppressed groups. Think about the countless federal programs that helped drag our country out of the Great Depression. Inspired by great socialist thinkers, FDR is considered one of our greatest presidents. In the 1950s, you know that, you know, the decade that Conservatives think back to fondly as the good old days. Well, during those good old days, the tax rate for major corporations was 91%. What is it today? About 27. And that was the decade that was run by conservative president Dwight D. Eisenhower. So I repeat, corporate tax rates were at 91%. Young people were able to graduate from college debt-free. And over a third of the workers belong to the unions compared to only 10% today. Now, this period from the 30s to the 70s was far from a perfect situation of equality and economic security. People of color had to battle or had to wage battles for survival, civil rights, and just an ounce of political power. The LGBTQ community had to fight for the right to simply love who they wanted. I'm by no means wanting to return to this period of history, but I simply argue that the gap between the rich elites and everyone else was greatly smaller then than it is now. So today we're still the richest nation that has ever existed on the face of the earth. I'm not trying to deny that. But a few things should be a basic human right as much as they are elsewhere on earth. So just to name a few, everyone should be able to enjoy quality health care from their first breath to their last. Or here's a crazy concept. All these conservative states that preach being so pro-life they should actually give a shit about a baby once it's been born and not just try to rip every single social net, uh, social net out from under it.
These social nets include preventative care, mental health services, and prescription drugs. Next on the list is that no one should ever go hungry. Anyone who desires a job should be able to have one. Your zip code should not determine the quality education you receive. The color of your skin should not determine how you're treated by banks, police officers, or the criminal justice system itself. The country you were born in should not predict how many rights you will have once you leave it. And finally, no one should live in fear that their world will be made unlivable by global warming. So these are just a few that begin to scratch the surface of what democratic socialists stand for. So you'll see when you actually do your own research and not just blindly follow what you see on fixed on xenophobia, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's not fixed on xenophobia, it's, it's Fox, excuse me. Once you see that these are common things that each and every one of us want our children to have as well as ourselves. So these ideas seem pretty common sense, don't they? These common sense ideas are the cornerstone of a decent society. All right, so stay with me. Let's keep naming off some agreed upon things that we all think are great. Government funded fire departments, national parks, city owned utility companies, subway systems, and public colleges. We can all agree that the super rich should pay higher taxes than the middle and lower class. Seems fair. So call me crazy, and I freaking love my Amazon Prime three-day shipping, but I believe that Jeff Bezos should actually pay more in taxes than you and I do. I mean, hell, shouldn't he just actually pay taxes at all? See Come stay and play at Live Casino and Hotel. Welcome to one of the biggest casinos in the country with luxurious clean rooms, upscale dining, and the grandest payouts. Now offering stay and play and all in packages, including $50 free slot play, VIP parking, VIP casino access, and more. Book now at livecasino.com or call 443-445-2929. At Arundel Mills, must be 21, please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgambling.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. When people ask, Regina, do you like to compete? I say, bring it on. Those are the moments that drive you to achieve more. And when you win, you keep reaching higher. To me, that's what the Cadillac Escalade represents. It's always evolving in technology, in design, everything. Because success isn't the end, it's just the first step to what comes next. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. So, see, I just, I just believe that banks should not be able to offer these balloon loans to people either uh, where they know they will never come close to paying it back. Energy companies should not be allowed to dump their toxic waste into rivers and lakes or just be allowed to pump toxins into the air at all, right? None of these ideas seem to be, seems to be wild and crazy, do they? Every one of us benefits from each of these ideas. So what is the common denominator between all of these different ideas that I just laid out? They're all socialist ideas. Crazy. So throughout our nation's history, the, these socialist thinkers and activists have played a major role in making all of these once radical ideas seem like basic rights. The United States has had a, his, has had a socialist movement since the late 1800s. While the movement has had an established political party for most of its existence, there've always been individuals who helped spread this message with such a great vigor and eloquence. 
So just, we're gonna name a few of these people. Helen Keller, W.E.B. Dubois, Upton Sinclair, Charlie Chaplin, Albert Einstein, A. Philip Randolph, Gloria Steinem, Martin Luther King Jr., and last but certainly not least, one of my personal heroes, the late, great Howard Zinn. These are some individuals that helped shape our country into what we know it as today. Yet the majority of Americans have no idea that they have embraced socialism their whole life. Socialism has been both an idea and a movement. So as an idea, socialism is about advancing the human race by creating these laws and institutions that give people the chance to reach their full potential. It also goes to tame the forces of racism, inequality, and the inherent exploitation of capitalism. So as a movement, socialism is about promoting those ideas through education, activism, and elections. All right, so we've kind of laid a foundation. Now let's talk about the origins. So in the early 1800s, Europe began a new phase of human history known as the Industrial Revolution or when capitalism really began. Most people then just knew it as a time where their everyday life changed. People who once lived as farmers were pushed off their land and forced into factories, mines, and warehouses. They were forced to work long hours in horrible conditions, live in overcrowded and disease-ridden slums, and had no chance for any relief. So the elite factory owners used their political power to ensure that the laws protected their own property and their own profits while considering workers as these replaceable pieces of the machine. The working class had no voice because they did not have the right to vote. So finally, the working class had enough and they rebelled. Workers refused to work and demanded better working conditions and pay. Journalists and writers documented the conditions and called for a different world where a liberated people would make life easier for themselves and end the exploitation that they faced. They called this word socialism, and they began forming unions and political parties that demanded the right to vote, right to decent pay, and safe working conditions. So this movement spread all across Europe and eventually made its way to the United States, and that was due to the immigration boom in the late 1800s. So as tens of thousands of immigrants came into the major cities on the East Coast and West Coast, they realized that the same exploitation that they fought in Europe was still alive and well in the United States. Just as that, but just as they had done in Europe, workers organized into labor unions, which became the foundation for the American socialist movement. So by the late 1870s, the Socialist Labor Party was born. So this leads us up into an era in the late 1800s known as the Gilded Age. So gilded, by definition, means to be lightly covered with gold. So fittingly, most history textbooks describe this time period as a period of great wealth, with vivid pictures of the titans of industry like Carnegie and Mellon and J.P. Morgan and how they helped transform the United States into the superpower that it's known as today. But just like in most history textbooks, this could not be further from the truth. This era was characterized by a great concentration of wealth, for sure, but it wasn't for the benefit of common everyday people. It was for those select few super wealthy and elites that were able to begin hoarding the wealth and concentrating it at the top. So the supposed titans of industry 
exploited their workers, gouged consumers, and corrupted politics with their own money. At the same time, the United States began to act like an imperial power and justified conquering territories with the claims of white supremacy, manifest destiny, and, the sh- uh, and all under this shroud of making the world safer for democracy. Because, you know, ripping away a person, another person's land, exploiting them for their resources, and then massacring them is the perfect way to enlighten them to democracy and religion. But we treated our people much better back in the good old U.S. of A., right? It's not like we were trying to prevent Catholics, Jews, and Asians from immigrating here because they were polluting Protestant America, correct? It's especially not like in the South where these ex-Confederate turns Klansmen in their white sheets were murdering thousands of African Americans to try and compensate for what they were lacking in the victories department, among other departments. Still, sounds like a great time period to you, right? Well, just like in every other bleak moment throughout our nation's history, the voiceless, nameless, overlooked, and exploited middle and lower class organized themselves into this collective coalition that challenged the status quo. So people of all backgrounds, such as the famous attorney Clarence Darrow novelist Jack, and novelist Jack London, led the charge to take back the power from a select few that held all the power. One of my favorite examples of a socialist uh, from this era play, that also played a major role in shaping our country is Francis Bellamy. Now, most of you might not recognize his name, but he actually wrote the Pledge of Allegiance. Yes, same one that conservatives are flipping shit about being removed from school, right? So Bellamy was a Christian minister who was fired from his position in his church because he depicted Jesus as a socialist. They've been on to something. So he said that he wrote the Pledge of Allegiance with the hope that it would bring about a more collective and just vision for America amid the shit show that was the Gilded Age. All right, so we've reached a new century. It's the 1900s, it's the dawn of a new century. It brought great hope for radical change in the United States, and no person was a more popular voice of American socialism during that time than Eugene Debs. So he was born in 1855, and Debs gained great notoriety within the world of organized labor. As he rose to prominence, he also became the leader of the Socialist Party of America. So over the course of his life, he ran for president five different times. His best showing was actually in 1912 when he won 6% of the national vote and was able to carry over 10% of the vote in the entire West. That's a major accomplishment for a third party. So this was due in part to the majority of the voters being lower class farmers and workers who were tired of being exploited by Wall Street. So you might think that 6% isn't anything major, but what it also did was it gave the socialist movement a national audience, and that resulted in over 1,200 socialist candidates winning office across the country at every level of government. All right, so that's the early 1900s, 1912, so let's jump ahead about 15 years to the end of the roaring 20s. After all the reckless deregulation of the 20s, the stock market ultimately crashed in October 1929, and that triggered the Great Depression. So with more than 13 million Americans jobless and unable to access their money in the banks, capitalism was on the verge of collapsing in upon itself. So this fear 
allowed radicals on both the left and the right to push for new ideas for our country. But ultimately, we kind of settled in the middle with a modest revolution of its own with FDR and his New Deal. So during one of the worst periods of the Great Depression, the Socialist Party platform called for retirement pensions, unemployment insurance, and public works projects. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? So all of those were part of FDR's platform once he became president. So when FDR was elected president during that same 1932 election, he didn't run as a progressive, and he actually didn't really have any bold plan to lift the U.S. out of the Depression. But what separated him was that he was willing to try new ideas when the old ones were clearly not working. I know that is such a crazy notion. But his willingness to try new ideas was met with success. This emboldened him to launch his second New Deal, and that is what gave us Social Security and other jobs-creating programs that helped steer us out of the Depression. So while FDR's New Deal was a monumental step forward in the U.S., it also left much to be desired. So following the Allied victory in World War II, the stage was set for the American society to start a new chapter of progress for both workers' rights and civil rights. Unfortunately, as the Iron Curtain descended upon uh, Europe, it started to usher in the Cold War globally. But also, another Cold War began at home. Elites and conservative politicians, they started their own Cold War against unions, government welfare, civil rights, and other progressive ideas by painting them as tools of the communist menace. Because the business elites saw the progressive ideas as a threat to their power, they started using words like socialism and communism interchangeably, pretty much to attack anybody that had a different view than them. So this was, this was especially true if you were against nuclear war, if you were against segregation, and if you were for free uh, speech, then all of that meant you were a threat to American society in their eyes. So while McCarthyism and the Red Scare took hold, most of the Uni Americans did not bother to take the time to learn the difference between socialism and communism. So the most dramatic sign, though, of a new opening for radical change was this emergence of the civil rights movement. So starting with the Montgomery boycott in 1955, the movement accelerated with the freedom rides and different voter registration drives in the 60s. The Montgomery protest was led by that little, uh, at the time, a little-known 26-year-old minister named Martin Luther King Jr., King began his activism in Montgomery as this crusader against racial segregation, but the struggle for civil rights radicalized him into a fighter for social justice and ultimately transformed him into a, uh, believing in many democratic socialist views. So <clears throat> the Montgomery boycott transformed King into this national figure and placed the injustices of segregation and white supremacy squarely into the nation's consciousness. Of course, opponents of the civil rights movement tried to tarnish his reputation by calling him a communist. So rarely he was able, he was rarely able to make his radical views known. But on certain occasions he was able to. So for instance, in 1961, King proclaimed, call it democracy, or call it democratic socialism. 
but there must be a better distribution of wealth within this country for all of God's children. So later in 1963, King's famous I Have a Dream speech, it catapulted him into the national spotlight. Although it was primarily a civil rights rally, it was also a protest for economic justice and jobs. It included a demand to pass a civil rights act as well as an increase in the federal minimum wage. So while the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 were both tremendous gains, there was also still a lot to be desired. Neither did much to provide better jobs or housing to African Americans in the rural uh, South or the urban cities. So this led King to conclude that poverty cannot be eradicated by simply relying on a capitalist model that was obviously fundamentally skewed against the lower classes. So we started to see that it wasn't just voting rights that you needed. You needed to have a fundamental change that was affecting all of the lower classes. So while the civil rights movement gained steam throughout the 1960s, a man named Michael Harrington took the mantle of the American socialist movement and gained a national prominence with his book, The Other America. So in it, Harrington challenged the conventional wisdom that the nation had to become an overwhelmingly middle-class society. He revealed that nearly one-third of all Americans live below the poverty line. His book began to humanize the poor and uh, showed them as people that were trapped in the difficult conditions that weren't of their own making. So this flew in the face of everything that uh, political leaders were saying at the time. So he stated, the fate of the poor hangs upon the decisions of the better off. And until these facts shame us, until they stir up enough action, the other America will continue to exist, an example of needless suffering in the most advanced society in the world. But interestingly enough, the word socialism never once appeared in that book. So Harrington wanted to, the book to be able to tug at people's conscience. He wanted to outrage them, and he wanted to push them into action. But Harrington did not argue that capitalism caused poverty or that the solution was strictly uh, socialism. So that's where this emergence of democratic socialism began. He argued that the solution was, for, was full employment, more funding for housing, health care, and better schools and jobs training. Unlike Debs, Harrington never thought it was possible to create this radical third party. He stated that the goal must be to build coalitions among labor, civil rights, and religious groups to form like a further left plank uh, within the Democratic Party, which he developed and called the New Left. So in 1982, Harrington helped found the Democratic Socialist of America. This marked a real, the realization that the period of a socialist political party in the United States has passed. So instead, Harrington pushed the DSA, as it became known as, to become an advocacy group whose mission was to push the Democratic Party further to the left. And it honestly achieved, achieved a great deal of success. Harrington's The Other America served as an inspiration for Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs. And this progr these programs they gave us Medicare and Medicaid. But unfortunately, Harrington's death in 1989 ushered in a relatively quiet period for the DSA. And it wasn't until the mid-2010s and the rise of Bernie and the other progressives 
and all that we mentioned at the beginning of this program that the democratic socialists started to gain traction in the United States again. So we're going to stop there for this episode. And that's going to conclude just our brief overview of the history of democratic socialism and socialism in the United States. So I hope that you found this uh, brief overview to be informative. Do I think that I'm going to change people's minds about how they feel towards democratic socialism? Hell no. I'd like to, but I'm not going to hold my breath. But that's the great thing about the United States. We can always have a right to our own opinion, believe it or not. And that is something that won't change even if the evil, like I mentioned at the beginning, democratic socialists take control. Hell, you might even see that you have a greater sense of freedom when you act when your vote actually starts to carry more weight under a democratic socialist model. More than anything, my hope was that this will maybe show people that just because something isn't the status quo or what you're used to doesn't automatically make something bad. To fear something you have no idea about is the quickest route to hate. So the big question that we posed at the beginning is, is American socialism, did it succeed? Has it succeeded throughout its existence in the United States? Well, if success means that the United States has chained into a democratic socialist country, then the movement has utterly failed. I'll admit that. But if success means that many Americans accept and embrace ideas that were once considered radical, even socialist, and made the United States a more just and humane society, then I'd say we've achieved a great deal, and it's been a great contribution to this country. But like always, we still have a ways to go. So as you can see, we started off this episode describing how President Trump said we will never, have, have never, and will never be a socialist country. Well, just like every other dipshit rambling of someone that has been sipping on a little bit too much Lysol, this statement is blatantly wrong. Let me use Donald Trump himself to explain why he's wrong. Donald Trump himself and his family has benefited from the massive amounts of something called corporate welfare. They're all against welfare, but not corporate welfare. So if you are the Trump family, you received $885 million worth of tax breaks and subsidies for your family's housing empire that, among other things, was built on racial discrimination. Look it up. What Trump is about is socialism for the very rich. What we're about is democratic socialism for working families. And that right there is the big difference. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. We will continue our series on democratic socialism next week by discussing how a third reconstruction is needed to remedy our failure to address the sins of our past, that, and also that we've allowed racism to shape our society and public policy. So once again, I want to thank you for your support. And also, if you enjoyed listening to this and look forward to next week, feel free to like this episode and subscribe to my channel. I always like any kind of comments or feedback, positive or negative. I want to hear how I'm doing. So until next week, this is Caleb Mood reminding you, that the most revolutionary act that one can do is to simply tell the truth. Thank you so much and have a good week. Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. When people ask, Regina, do you like to compete? I say, bring it on. 
Those are the moments that drive you to achieve more. And when you win, you keep reaching higher. To me, that's what the Cadillac Escalade represents. It's always evolving in technology, in design, everything. Because success isn't the end, it's just the first step to what comes next. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. When people ask, Regina, do you like to compete? I say, bring it on. Those are the moments that drive you to achieve more. And when you win, you keep reaching higher. To me, that's what the Cadillac Escalade represents. It's always evolving in technology, in design, everything. Because success isn't the end, it's just the first step to what comes next. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving.